right, everyone. Thank you for tuning into the Honest Defense podcast. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Patrick Verone. In college, Patrick was an editor of the Harvard Lampoon. He graduated from Boston College Law School before becoming a TV writer. Early in his writing career, he was a monologue writer for The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He's written for Futurama, which is coming back next year. We'll get into that. He's been with them since their first season. He's also served as a producer and executive producer on the show. He's also served as the president of the Writers Guild of America. He was there during the 2007-2008 writer strike. On top of all of that, he also sculpts, paints, and sells historical figurines, which is oddly how I came across him. We'll get into that as well. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, Eric. So I always like to start with what people were like growing up, and especially someone like you, because I had an antagonistic relationship with school. I always felt like school got in the way of everything else I wanted to do, especially creative stuff. And so I'm, I'm fascinated by people who are creative types, who also did well in school. I assume you did well. You went to Harvard. Can you, what was your experience like in school, particularly, you know, middle school, high school? Oh, well, I, I mean, I was, uh, I was, uh, the 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 uh, I was a nerd from the earliest days, and I was really quite establishment. I was I, I grew up in in New York City in the 1960s, and um, I went to a I went to a Catholic school for elementary school. Uh, then when we moved to Florida, uh, when I was 12. I had one and a half years of public school in Fort Myers, Florida, but then I went to a Catholic school for high school. Then, of course, the four years at at, at Harvard. Uh, but then I went to Boston College Law School, which is a Jesuit uh, law school. Uh, so I, I had a very straight laced, follow the rules, uh, beware of the nuns uh, kind of upbringing. And and no, I was a I was a good kid. I'm still a good kid. I like to think so. Yeah, no, but I, I actually found I was able to be, you know, both creative and 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 spontaneous, you know, within the parameters. It was it was a good it was a good way to, to sort of limit one's imagination so that I didn't have to come up with anything really outrageous. Once in a while I did though, but but no, I I I was a good kid. <laughs> So where did the where did the comedy gene come from? If it wasn't a rebellious aspect, again to me, like that's where I felt like the comedy. My comedy was always in rebelling. It, it it I guess it always is to a certain extent. I mean, the whole theory or many people's theory of comedy is that you set expectations in one direction and then you veer into another. And for me, that was more or less a, a learned behavior. Um. I feel like I get most of my comedic genes from my my mother, who was, uh, I would say, inherently an entertainer because she was a school teacher for her entire life. And so a lot of what her means of of communication, her means of expression were funny voices and funny faces. And, you know, I mean, I, I love my mother dearly. I miss her terribly, but she was a clown sometimes. And, and I think I picked up a lot of that internally. And again, with the, with the Catholic school upbringing, however, it was, you know, the design was to suppress that and to, you know, fly straight and narrow. And then when I got to Harvard, I mean, the, you know, once I, once I got into Harvard and spent some time, you know, at the at the Lampoon, which which when I joined the Lampoon was really the island of misfit toys. I mean, this is a period that we 
we call now BC before Conan. Conan O'Brien was a few years younger than me. And, and people would join the Lampoon. It was a very nerdy place. It was a place where, of you know, if, if you were interested in writing as a career, which I was not, uh, if you were interested in writing as a career, um, it was because you were going to go work at the New Yorker. You know, you were going to follow in the footsteps of a John Updike or George Plimpton. It wasn't a place as it is now that became a feeder for the entertainment industry, which I and my cohort are somewhat to blame now for all that. But but once we got there and the just surviving in that environment with with people who have now gone on to be some of the progenitors of, of the important comedy of the 21st century, particularly television and, and film comedy, in order to survive there, you really had to develop a, 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 not only a quick wit, but you know a better than average kind of. You couldn't you couldn't just do you know <laughs> belching and farting jokes. Yeah, you, you had to really have some level of sophistication to your to and and so my mother's funny faces and funny voices had to adapt. And you you know literally as with so many things at Harvard, you just you learn. And, and, you know, I had, I had some, and we were all learning from each other and among my teachers, you know, included Al Jean, who's now run the Simpsons for 25 years and Mike Reese, who, uh, these are both classmates of mine who are, uh, uh, you know, am among the, the, as I said, the, the real um, leaders in, in television uh, comedy writing, but, you know, we all kind of came up together. And as I said, my, my strategy at the time was, look, I'll just, this is something to put on my resume for when I apply to law school. And, and then when I got to law school and I decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is my going to be my living. I remember distinctly seeing a, a, uh, one of the, one of the great truisms of life is that in law school, every uh, instructor or professor's doorway on the, on the door, they have countless political cartoons or, or, uh, little quotes from from very few from law cases, mostly from from scholars and whatnot. And there was one that said there are no funny lawyers, only funny people who made the wrong career choice. <laughs> and and that you know stuck with me. And, and I'm, I'm jumping ahead, so I don't want to sure. over anticipate your question. But as you can tell, I did, you know I squandered that legal degree. Uh, I did as many of us have. There you are. You're another one, aren't you? Yes. No. Two. I I practiced. I moved back to South Florida. Uh, practiced for two and a half years at a law firm there, and you know, meanwhile, saw my classmates go to New York to work at Saturday Night Live. So uh, friends from the Lampoon, including a woman I had been dating as an undergraduate, she came out to Hollywood and. Uh, she started working at sitcoms and, you know, I'd see their names go by in the in the credits of, of the David Letterman show and the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And, and I just felt like, wait, well, my name on a on an appellate brief before the, uh, you know, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals or the Eleventh Circuit, whatever it was at the time, it wasn't as impressive. And so so I asked for a three month sabbatical and I covered my face because I didn't know what the senior partner was going to throw at me. And he said, son, when I was your age, I, I could have pitched for the Detroit Tigers and I turned them down. And he said, you go follow your dream. Wow. 
and and I'm now in the 36th year of that three month sabbatical. So <laughs> I'm not going back. So that that was a good overview, but I do want to go back in the timeline okay, sure. a little bit because I correct me if my timeline's wrong because I was going to ask you what it was like being at the Lampoon during its heyday because if if my timeline's right, you came in just after they had spun off the National Lampoon and Animal House had come out. So I assumed that the Harvard Lampoon was going to have this big reputation at the time you were there for being the the fun place and the, the place where people do go to get into Hollywood and into comedy. Yeah, no, I I was part of the what I would call the first wave. Your your, your timeline is correct in that I I joined the staff in December of 1978. Animal House had come out in the summer of yeah, summer of 78 and uh National Lampoon had been had spun off uh Doug Kenny and Henry Beard had 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 established the Lampoon in the in about 72 or 73. I don't remember the exact year, but but and, and so, for those his, his comedy scholars out there, the the word lampoon was actually trademarked. And so the national the deal that Kenny and Beard made was that in order to, they had to license the word. And so any money the National Lampoon made, they had to pay a vig. They had to pay some percentage. I forget what it was to the Harvard Lampoon. So, so the heyday was that we suddenly had, you know, funding money coming in, especially once National Lampoon hundred million dollar movie. Um, I don't know what percentage of what percentage the Harvard Lampoon got, but but no, we were we were considered sort of prestigious from the perspective of we knew we had this money, but you know, the, in the Harvard community or in the community at large that really wasn't particularly well known yet. Um, and so it really took um, uh, people who were a few years older than me. Here's, the, here's the, the, the turning point story in the Lampoon saga was that Doug Kenny was, they, they started Saturday Night Live, or Michael started producing Saturday Night Live in 75 and wanted to hire Doug Kenny. And the story goes that Doug Kenny was in Hawaii or somewhere on vacation and, or just didn't want the job. So the guy who was house sitting for him, a guy named Jim Downey said, well, I'll come work there. And, and Downey became the, the head writer for, I don't know, 30 years, wow. 30 of the first 45 years. And, and Downey then would hire, there's been a steady stream, I don't know, 200 writers have gone from the Lampoon through um, SNL, starting with two guys who were a couple of years older than me, Max Pross and, and Tom Gamble, um, who uh, were there for, they, they went there to, to, to Letterman, to, uh, they've been at the Simpsons for, for several decades, as have many of Lampoon alum, alums. But, uh, but yeah, that, that was really where it began to take off. It was, it was in the late 70s, early 80s, where there was this feeder from the Lampoon into comedy variety. As I said, Letterman, The Tonight Show, uh, it was a show called Not Necessarily the News, which I think might have been Conan and his then writing partner, Greg Daniels, who also went on to create the American version of The Office and Parks and Rec and, and King of the Hill with Mike Judge. And then similarly, Andy Borowitz, who with his uh, then wife, Sue Stevenson Borowitz, who was my class at the Lampoon, uh, they created Fresh Prince and this whole world of sitcoms which the woman I dated at the time, Maya Williams, 
who is now my wife of 32 years, uh, followed that track. And so, yeah, that's, that's where it, you can trace that through, I want to say the mid 80s, which is also when Conan comes along. He's class of 85. What what do you think explains that pipeline? Because obviously, like, there's a lot of smart people at Harvard, but you don't think of that as a particularly funny or creative place. But that's where I say it, we were the misfits. You know, okay. we were not, uh, with with rare exception, including myself, not interested in in business school because that was my era. You know, it was the people who all went to work for, you know, went to went to Wall Street. And I go back to we go back to our reunions. And you know you've got this this cohort who, uh, my my class includes Carlton Cuse who you know ran Lost and and about a hundred other shows and 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 besides Mike and Al I mean there's there's dozens of people who came out here to Hollywood but there's hundreds who went to Wall Street or who went to the State Department there are two former cabinet members in my class at Harvard Penny Pritzker who was the Secretary of Commerce and Loretta Lynch who was the Attorney General both under Barack Obama who of course was also at Harvard Law School a little bit after us so we didn't cross paths he was a much younger man than the rest of us um, but but yeah no that that was and we'd go to our reunions and what, what was always interesting was all of these uh, you know the the high and mighty in the United States government and and the world of business and finance they all have gray hair, what hair they had, whereas the rest of us still had dark hair. And we looked good because we lived in Southern California and we took care of ourselves and we didn't have to shovel snow three months out of the year. So, you know, there, there's a nice trade-off between our kind of fame and fortune and theirs. But, but no, that was, that was it. We were, we were the freaks and geeks, which is another show that Andy Borowitz was involved in. How did the Harvard administration treat the lampoon? I mean, did they appreciate your misfitness, or or were there was there headbutting? Um, there were a couple of incidents that, uh, <laughs> because of, well, I can I can tell you a couple of stories that involve someone who is no longer with us. Um, you know, the lampoon was famous for, and this has been true for the 150 years, 125 years the lampoon has been around for just doing you know harmless, generally speaking, harmless pranks. And uh, it, it, there were, however, occasions, and this has traditionally been the case with the rivalry between the Harvard Crimson, um, which is the daily newspaper at Harvard, and the Lampoon, which was, was us rapscallions. And so one of the classic things that we would do would be to steal their president's chair, which is this big piece of wood that looks like an electric chair that, uh, that we would frequently take and hide uh, somewhere. And in fact, uh, this is not my era. About four years ago, no, it must have been five years ago, the, lamp, the then Lampoon leadership stole the Crimson Chair, put it on a pickup truck, drove it to New York. This is about two months after Donald Trump announced that he was running for president. They brought it to him and said, <laughs> we're the Harvard Crimson. We're endorsing you for president. Because they thought... <laughs> And you, you know, look it up on this. This happened. They I, thought his campaign was a joke, and so they they posted. There's a picture of him sitting in the crimson chair with two thumbs up, and all these you know 19, 20 year olds standing around si uh, about him. 
And the picture, I guess, was taken by Michael Cohen, who, who now is now defrocked right. general counsel. And and uh, th that's the level of, of pranks that we would do, that we would tend to get away with. Once in a while, they would go awry, and and the administration, what was called the ad board, the administrative board, um, would have to get involved, and there would be inquiries. And but, you know, again, I'm still flying the straight and narrow. I was a good kid. I didn't have it, and I wanted to go to law school, so I didn't. I didn't participate in any. Set out. You set out the inquiry. What do you remember? Any of the pranks that caused a, an inquiry? Yeah. No. I unfortunately they they were not really pranky. They were simply oh let's go over to the crimson and mess mess the place up. And okay. That became uh, yeah the, the the you know the twist when you've had too much to drink. Unfortunately, sometimes your your standards of humor become. <laughs> Uh, are, are, are not are not appropriately influenced, but um, I, I was going to yeah. say I, I went to a state school for undergrad, and that was more similar to the pranks that we would pull was getting drunk and just smashing stuff. So I'm glad I'm yeah, glad Harvard things. wasn't too much different. Yeah, no. So that um, and again the, the the without going into detail, trust me, the the administration was not happy about it. But you know we weren't the worst. You know there was always Delta House. Or right. the animal house, and and you know honestly, we were trying to cultivate the image of being sort of like the animal house guys, but we weren't. We right. were all we were all uh, whatever the other house is that had the uh, the, the, the nerves with the sweaters, and, right? Right. So um, it was, but we you know and 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 again looking back, and we're talking forty five years ago now, um, it was a very white male group and we were we, the, the lampoon had only started um electing women four years before i got there and we recently celebrated the 50th um anniversary of women on the lampoon and it was we were still getting and harvard itself the harvard campus was was only completely merged with radcliffe in uh the the mid 1970s so i was among my class there was the first one that had all four classes. When I was a freshman, the seniors on down were all the first class that had been completely um, uh, co-educational, co as well as we were the first four-year grouping to have more than, you know, an actual representative based on ethnicity, representative group of, of students in general. So in other words, there was about 10, 12% of our classmates uh, were African American and and Latinx, and it was all so so. We were almost the canaries in the coal mine, and the Lampoon was slow to adopt that because you know it's like a car with square wheels sure. where you gotta rev it up and it moves a little bit. And and in fact, when when I was a senior and 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 among the women, the woman who I married included was was the first black woman elected to the the lampoon and and there were two other asian women who were elected at that point and this was all groundbreaking and we consider ourselves you know provocateurs and progressives and the like but so uh, were you, you were planning to go to law school from the very beginning i i had pretty much decided when i took the what, what they called in those days LSAT? the Cooter test oh, okay. in in high school yeah, which was the okay. So again, this is well, that's like, before my time. Sorry. Yeah, no, it was this. You you take a little pen and you punch your. It was a punch card style test where they ask you, would you rather, you know, dig a ditch or right. <laughs> argue before the Supreme Court? And you pick between the two. And I guess it said I should. 
I realized that I should either be a detective or a lawyer. So I must have, I think this was the Columbo influence because I was a big fan of that show. There was nowhere, there was no option for becoming a television comedy writer, certainly on my, on my career test <laughs> output. But, but so, yeah, so I thought I was going to go to law school. And when I went, you know, you go to Harvard, everybody goes to law school, right? That's what we thought. Um, and, and, but so, yeah, so that was the path. But you know, Eric, the intention was I would move back to South Florida. Um, I would uh, practice law, become a judge, run for Congress, you know, the, the sky's the limit. And it was only because of my being lured away by the glamour of Hollywood and show business that I, of course, you know, I still got time. Right. Well, you did run for office a few years back, didn't you? I did, in fact, run for the state Senate in California. Yes, I did not win. But, uh, and it was an interesting experience. I, without getting into the gory details sure. of, of it, it was, I mean, I actually found it, I have no regrets about it other than I wish it hadn't been a 24 hour, seven day a week, get on the phone and raise money. Um, which is why you know we're going through this now in LA where you have one candidate for mayor who's got such deep pockets, there's no fundraising necessary and can just write a check and, and put a billboard or a lawn sign on every city, every, every lawn in, in, in the city. And, and it's just, that to me was not what I thought publicly engaged civic um, civic minded public servants were about. And so that's why I haven't chosen to do it again, because it was a lot of a lot of calling up and asking people for money. And, oh, yeah. and so, you know, if I become independently wealthy, right, maybe I'll, I'll but I've, I've always said that because I, I spent a little bit of time working in politics in D.C. And, and yeah. I said I could only do this if I had so much money that I wouldn't need to have all of this. I wouldn't need to be asking other people for stuff. It, it is the mother's milk and and the bane of the existence of of any not inherent, you know, in, independently wealthy, self-funded candidate. What kind of law were you practicing when you did practice? When I, again, when I, it was South Florida, so newlyweds and nearly deads, um, okay. a lot, the firm itself did a lot of, uh, I would call it public interest, except a lot of it wasn't in the public interest. It, they would, they would represent, you know, the, 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 the insurance company that, that underwrote the, the, uh, the government agency that somebody had slipped and fallen on the front steps. Of. Right. Most of what I did was was the, the appellate work, and and because you know these were all this was a small law firm where just about everybody else was one foot closer to retirement than I am now, and they were you know they would say oh I got to write a forty page brief, give it to the kid you know, <laughs> and and so I did so I was. I was writing these these appellate court briefs and then at some point actually getting in before, you know, going to the circuit court hearings and, and oral arguments before uh, judges who eventually went on to decide the 2000 presidential election, because huh. a few of them were and right, got, got appointed to the Florida Supreme Court. They didn't decide the election, but uh, they were they were in the middle of it. But, yeah, no, it was it was. And, and, you know, I tell people I didn't leave the law because I didn't like it. I enjoyed doing what I was doing. It was just, a, you know, there was something else that looked to be more fun. And right. I get fewer headaches than I, than I did when I practiced law. But still, it's a, 
Did you have that moment where you were like, hey, look, I have a nice, comfortable career here. I have the path laid out in front. I mean, because I think there's so many people who go to law school, become lawyers, are that are that type that like having the steps laid out in front of them. So did you have that moment where you're like, oh, what am I doing here? Like, I, I have a serious career. I'm not going to go and, and write for Johnny Carson. <laughs> well, it wasn't quite that binary because, you know, again, I had because there was a woman who I had been dating who was luring me out here and she got uh, she was represented by uh, a talent agent who called me at my law office and said, if you come out here, I'll get you work. And I said, I've heard of agents. I don't believe you. And he said, no, really, I will. And I said, well, if you can say, you know, twice and with such verb, maybe I'll I'll give it a try. And and, and he said know, that with no like did, you didn't submit any work. Like, did you have any anything previous for him to look at to know that you were good? He had the word of his current client. Maya and the the lampoon was beginning to build a reputation at that point, and so you know I think I th well the assumption was so I so I came out here and this really dated I wrote I wrote a Cheers spec I wrote a Golden Girls spec and I wrote a, a Remington Steel which was a dramatic hour long because my even in the early days that I was out here I thought okay look I I have a law degree they're gonna I'm gonna want to be on shows like, or they're going to hire me on something like LA Law, or you know, this before Law and Order existed, right. but but there were those kinds of shows, and and so I was writing those kind of specs as well as, and so what he ended up, what ended up happening was, how many agents work? They'll just you know whatever jobs come across the the transom, they'll see who's available, and so he called me up and said, can you write jokes for for Joan Rivers, and I and I thought and I said. Absolutely, of course, because you're not supposed to say you can't. So I said, yeah, I can write jokes for Joan Rivers. So I I, I got uh, her LPs. I mean, I heard of her. I knew she right. was the guest host on The Tonight Show in those days. And and I just typed up some two or three pages of one-line jokes uh, in her, what I thought was her idiom. But the interesting thing was this was on a, a desktop computer that was about the size of a, a Buick. And, you know, it had the me less memory than your, you know, than a watch has now. And, and I couldn't, it was a word perfect 2.0 or something. And I, and I couldn't turn off the right justification. So everything was perfectly <laughs> justified left and right on this, you know, daisy wheel um, printout. And the guy who read the material, a man named Hank Bradford, who had been the head writer on The Tonight Show when Johnny was in New York and it had, you know, this was a guy who went back to his first job was with Sid Caesar. So, you know, I am, I, he was to me what I am to now new young writers coming up, coming up. And, and he, he called me up and he said, these are the best typed jokes I've ever seen because they were completely justified. <laughs> just, he said some of them just kind the, of funny. Physically the way they sat on the page. Yeah. <laughs> So, so that's, that's technically how I broke in by being a good. Wow. So, so that was, that was your first job was, was the tonight show was no, the late show the, with the, Joan Rivers, okay. which was the, yeah. Cause she, what happened was she left the tonight show okay. to go to get her own show it was the first show ever on Fox. And, and it was, it was late night live. So the first I mean, we we did some pre-production for about a month, but the first television experience I had was on live national television. I was about 15 feet away from Rupert Murdoch in the green room 
watching Joan Rivers, Elton John, Cher, Pee Wee Herman, and David Lee Roth do a live television show. I said, hey, this is easy. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was, was kind of- I, I was gonna say, you never had to look back to Florida after that. Yeah, there's been a few glances over the back of my shoulder since then, but yeah, no, so that was, so I, yes, I I was really lucky <laughs> to yeah. put it mildly. But, and I never, you know, to this day, I have never practiced law in California. I got my uh, bar car, I, mean, I got, I passed the bar exam out here uh, when we went on strike in in 1987, which was a year after we I had gotten the first job and gotten into the to the Writers Guild. But uh, and I took the bar because I thought, okay, this strike's going to end. I won't actually have to take the bar. And it went on. It went on. That strike went on for five months, and I took the bar. I passed it because there was no pressure. Right. So, but I've <laughs> never practiced. I've never. I've never bothered to go. I've taught law. I've written law, but I've never actually practice it in 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 california uh, i just renewed my my uh bar membership because i say i have to at least be able to call myself a lawyer so i, I pay 275 dollars every year just so i can say i'm a lawyer even though i, I don't practice it, it it's i i eventually stopped paying my florida bar dues because that seemed like a, uh there wasn't any purpose yeah because i'd be inactive for much less so uh, but I still, you know, and I still have to keep up with the CLE, with the continuing legal education, which I'm sure your listeners at home really care about my need to keep up with CLE. But uh, <laughs> next question. We can talk all about CLE. Yeah. Uh, so so basically, so from there, you kind of just, is it just building up that reputation that people say, hey, this guy's funny. Let's hire him for our show. Let's hire him for this show. How, how does Nothing it go like from that. general? Nothing. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Nothing like that at all. So my, so my next job happened when uh, the late show and again, for your most of your viewers are born after this. I, I was just going to say we're 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 getting close to when I was born. We're getting yeah, we're okay. almost there. Now, so so every when Johnny Carson was on the air, he was the king of late night. It's not like it is now, where you've got you know eight or more different com- competing shows that nobody watches live and just watch the clips the next day on YouTube or or wherever. It was. You had to watch him at 11.30, and you had to watch it at 11.30. And then Letterman would come on at 12.30 for the hipper, younger crowd right. who could stay up later. But but Johnny Carson from 1963 through 1992 was the was the guy, the king of late. He was the place where a lot of people got their news, where a lot of people, it was, you know, he, he would always say, this is, you know, people who watch my show and this is why he kind of defended his own sort of sometimes he would be softer on on like he never he never made jokes about Nixon during Watergate. He was completely even handed about it because he didn't want people to get stressed out about the news. And so because he thought people who were watching his show were up late either because they were waiting for their kid to come home or because somebody had died that day. And there was, you know, there was all kinds, people had enough stress in their lives. So, right. so he tried to be um, that kind of entertainer. Um, whereas now it's a lot more pointed. It's a lot more, there's a lot more anger in, uh, uh, in late night TV. But the, but the whole point of it was that he, um, he was only when 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 I right before I started there. He was only on the air three nights a week. He, this is like his twenty seventh year in 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 uh, on the Tonight Show. And so the other two nights of the week, 
were either one was a rerun and one was a guest host. And so from about nine, uh, 83 or 84, Joan Rivers became the regular guest host. And she was there every Monday night. And she would, uh, she was what we called the substitute host or the substitute, the, like the substitute teacher, right. which meant that she could do things that were more risque or more, or, you know, she would, she would, she would use words that Johnny Carson wouldn't use. She was really edgy. Um, and so when, when Murdoch started the Fox network, they wanted to have somebody who was cutting edge to host their, their show and uh, to host their flagship late night live show. And so they hired her away. I don't know the story, but it sounds like Johnny was either not told or he wasn't told the right way. So he kind of got angry at her and she, you know, they, there was a feud that made the cover of people magazine and was anyway. So when I was at the late show, it didn't do that. Well, I mean, people discovered that the substitute host was only getting the ratings that she was getting because she was a change of pace and people were still fond of Johnny. And he still had at that point, seven more years of being the king of late. Did, did her show compete at the same time slot as Johnny? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and there had been, there'd been a long line of shows that had gone up against Johnny, mostly on, he was on NBC, mostly ABC, CBS. They all tried and they, Jerry Lewis, Joey Bishop, uh, uh, Cabot, and none of them, you know, they all went, they ended up going back to the only thing that did all right was Nightline with Ted Koppel. If you know your, your comedy history, you probably know the parodies of Nightline yeah. on SNL. But so, so, she, you know, the show declined. The Late Show did not make the ratings mar uh, limits that the, uh, that the, uh, uh, the advertisers needed. So there were cutbacks, and among them were the writers. So I got canned after about 26 weeks, so half a year, six months. So at that point, remember the head writer who was still there, who had been a Tonight Show head writer, said, well, why don't you send stuff over to the Tonight Show? I'll, uh, you know, I still know some guys there. Maybe they'll uh, get Johnny to take a look at it. And so he did, and he liked whatever I submitted. And so I get this, and this was the interview that every writer uh, in Hollywood at the time wanted, which was you got to go into the bunker under the, under the stage at the Tonight Show and NBC in Burbank, and uh, you meet Johnny Carson. And it was like meeting the president. I right. mean, you just walk in because and people say, well, what did the office look like? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I'm looking at the guy. I'm not looking at the room. You know, it's like going into the yeah, old office. Vision. And right. yeah, what's the decor? <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and he was, he was his, he was, it was like, it literally was a desk yeah. and a couch. And it was like being on the show and you would sit there and he would talk to you. And, and I remember he said, uh, show your lawyers. All right. And I said, well, I, I have been, yes. And he said, lawyers and writers my whole life. <laughs> so, and then the good news for me was he had just, uh, he was, he had, his fourth wife was working out. <laughs> so he was in a pretty good mood. Uh, so that's that. So I got hired. I was there. Did he for... ask you? Did he ask you any questions? Like, what? What was that? How long did that whole process last? Of you sitting down with him? It might have been again. Who remembers? I mean, right. not only was it a long time ago, but it but it just went by like that. It was maybe twenty minutes of of just small talk. 
and and I'll and I'll say you know may the man rest in peace. But um, and he was a he was funny and he could ad lib with with the best of them, but he was shy and was not especially in. I found able to engage in human to human. You know, it's like you go meet your rich uncle. What do you got to talk about, right. generally speaking? So he was mostly interested in. Um, was I available to start work and that sort of thing, as I recall. And, and the thing was, he didn't bring up Joan. He knew that I, he, and he didn't, you know, he just didn't want to talk about that. I guess it was, it was a very simple conversation as I recall. And, you know, the, the, there have been the stories that come out of those meetings because in the, in the history of the, the show, there were maybe only two or three people who didn't, um, get hired when they when they went through the meeting, and I think you had to look demographically like Johnny. So you know, in in the in the twenty nine years of that show, there were seventy five white male writers, and that's what I was. So I got in. Um, I, I I could ask you about Johnny all day. There's so much I want to ask you about, but I don't want to keep you here all night. So we'll fast forward. I have to ask you about Futurama. So sure. you, I, you wrote an article for Slate a few years ago that I just read, and you had this, this quote. You said, the writing staff at Futurama included three PhDs, seven master's degrees, and more than half a century of Harvard education. We were easily the most overeducated cartoon writers in history. So can you explain how did, how did the, that job come about? How did, how did all of Futurama, because you were there from the beginning, right? I've, I've worked on every episode of Futurama uh, since, since day one. Um, so the... Futurama, as anybody who watches the show knows based on the look, looks like The Simpsons because it was created by the creator of The Simpsons, Matt Groening. Um, at the time that, that Futurama was, was created, um, The Simpsons, I think, was in the eighth or ninth season. And I think even Matt was thinking, okay, this is going to end soon. <laughs> so let me develop another idea that I have. Um, which is something we now know he does every 12 or 15 years because he eventually went on to create Disenchantment. And that's it. He's done three, he's created three shows in a 35-year Hollywood career, which is real restraint. Um, but but so 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 David David Cohen, uh, he didn't have the X at that time. David Cohen was on the writing staff of The Simpsons, and David uh, was one of the many Harvard-educated Simpsons uh, writers, uh, although he also has a master's from Cal Berkeley uh, in, in, uh, in physics, I think is what his master's is, and I, I forget. But, but so, so Matt and he spent about a year writing the pilot for Futurama. And, you know, you walk in, in those days, Matt Groening could walk into uh the the fox offices and say jump and they would ask how high and so he said uh i have an idea for and they said sold <laughs> so he, and he explained and really supposedly all they had to show the the art card at the end of the show was they had mocked up you know i used to say it used to say 20th century fox at the end of this and now it says I guess it's the 21st or actually it doesn't say it at all anyway they mocked it up so it said 30th century fox okay. And Peter Roth, who was then running Fox, said, uh, let's take it. How many do you want to do? And, and so they, you know, David, who had really 
only worked on The Simpsons. He, he went to grad school. I think he'd sold two Beavis and Buttheads and then worked for five years on The Simpsons. So he, he didn't have a real depth of knowledge of right, you know, he did, there wasn't a whole stable of David X. Cohen writers other than people he knew from college and, and or who had been to that college. So he, he hired uh, uh, Ken Keeler, who is still on the show to this day, who had a PhD in uh, uh, applied math, or I, I'm, forgive me, Ken, I know, oh, electri electrical engineering from Harvard and another master's from, from Stanford. Uh, he hired a guy with a master's from Harvard named Stuart Burns. He hired uh, a guy with a master's from Berkeley named Eric Kaplan, who has since gotten his PhD. He just hired all these people with advanced degrees. What was, was that intentional? Did he, did he want people who had that formal education? Why, why did all these people come together to this one show? They may, you know, this was the case in the room where I, with my JD, was the dumb guy. Right. But, you know, we made each other laugh. We could do, you know, I think, I think David wanted to elevate the audience. And there was a, a sort of one of our mantras on the show was that, um, you know, we let's teach them some, the phrase is actually, let's teach them some fucking Latin, but it could, you know, fill in the fucking blank. Right. Let's teach them some physics. Let's teach them some. And, and you know, we, I remember distinctly, we did a joke uh, on an episode very early on where Kiff Croker was trying to impress Amy Wong. I'll just assume your your audience is fans of the show. They'll know these characters. And he created a an image on a holodeck with a pony. And Amy said, uh, Kiff, this is lovely of you. This is the pony that my parents never got me because they thought I already had too many ponies. And he said something, I'm glad you liked it. It took a million lines of basic. And even at the time, the basic computer language was passe. And I didn't know that anybody knew. And so I think Gary Kaplan said, who's going to get that? Who's going to think that's funny? And the response was, you know, the hell with them. It's funny to us. We'll laugh. And, right. and that's been sort of the reward of, of Futurama. And the punishment has been we get canceled every two three years. That's I was going to ask you about this because so this when I was in high school was when Family Guy came out on DVD. And then I I believe Futurama came out on DVD a little bit after that. So, you know, we hadn't watched Family Guy when it originally aired. We hadn't watched Futurama when it originally aired. But guys would come into high school with these DVDs that we'd watch back in the in the media room. And, and it was the show Family Guy and it was the show Futurama. So I, I think this was when that they had been canceled. And so correct me, you know, because because you were there. I, I I only know this from my own experience was sure. we were watching these DVDs. We're falling in love with these shows. And I think this was happening all across America. And so that's when Family Guy came back. And that's when Futurama came back. Was that was it the DVDs it, that helped bring it back? That that was um, that was among the considerations. I, I think what really happened was um, it went on Adult Swim on on Cartoon Network and yeah. they. They had never had anything with that got the ratings that those two shows got. And so Fox took note of that and they, well, they brought Family Guy back to Fox right. and put it, I mean, and it's been on, you know, primetime network broadcast television ever since. But with Futurama, they decided just to make the four DVD, made four DVD movies that we made. Right. This is about 2005, Five, six. Yep, yep. 
then those were successful enough that they brought it back on Comedy Central, where we did uh, two, four seasons, or about 52 episodes. And, and that went off the air 10 years ago. That went off the air in 2012. And it's, you know, confidentially, I think the problem has been with Futurama is that the fan base is so dedicated to it to the extent that they will watch the reruns over and over and over again, but they don't care as much about the new episodes. So whenever the show comes back, and we'll see if this happens with Hulu as well next year, but the new episodes come back, they do okay, but the, what, the real money in it and the real success of the show was people watching it on Comedy Central, on Sci-Fi Channel, on Adult Swim, getting the DVDs, the downloads on, on Netflix and Hulu. And, and, you know, you don't need to make, it doesn't cost Fox and now Disney anything to make new ones if people are watching the old ones. Uh, that's, so I, that's, I'm, I'm guilty of that because I, yeah, I, I want to go back and watch the episodes that I saw when I was 16, 17, 18. Cause I just, there's something about the memories of being that age and watching that show when you're that age that just sticks with you. And I, I should branch out more and watch the new ones. And I, I'm going to watch when it comes out on Hulu next year. I'm excited yeah, about no, it. And then, and then eventually the new ones will become right. the old ones. Right, exactly. Generations right. of people who, who follow it. No, and it, I, we keep hearing about these people who um, watch it as like comfort. They yeah. watch it to go to sleep at night. And, and you know, it's nice, but we hope you watch the new ones too when right. you're trying to go to sleep. I guess it's not... You're not as prone to want to fall asleep if you've never seen the episode. But when you have all these smart guys in the room, are are you thinking about okay, we got to dumb the certain things down so people understand it, or or how are you thinking about about writing for the audience, or are you are you writing to make yourselves laugh in the room? Uh, that you know, that's the anecdote is we do it for us. Yeah. You know, we try to make sure that we're not doing, you know, we're not so. Uh, you know, off the charts, intellectual that were un, you know, un understandable. Right. We use words like ununderstandable <laughs> once in a while, for example. The and 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 you know, we have to keep an eye on that. Uh, and and you know, Matt is in the room a lot of the time as well, and he's he keeps us honest, and he wants you know make sure that there's a you know it's it's. It really does come down to we want to make ourselves laugh first and foremost, but we also, you know, what what we were 20 years ago is not what we are now. And, you know, the monkeys learn and we look back on those shows back then. And even we don't remember what some of the references were. <laughs> but we uh, so so we're we're, you know, and, and again, being canceled multiple times is a humbling experience. But but I, I think that's like a, a universal human principle because I've talked to, to to veterans who've been in war and, and when you ask them, you know, what are you fighting for? They say, I'm fighting for the guy next to me. You know, they're they're not thinking about the bigger the bigger principles. They're not thinking about the politics of it. They're thinking about who's here with me and and how do we survive this. And so it sounds like in the writer's room, it's kind of the same. It's like you can't you can't be thinking too big picture or else you're not gonna be productive in, in what you're actually trying to accomplish. I, I, there's, there's a, I don't want to compare. No, I, 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 to, I'm making that, I'm making that comparison. That, that you know, <laughs> but, uh, but I, but I, but I see the parallel that yeah. you're, you know, we, and, and because we've been, you know, rewarded with, with the level of success we have been and, and we do, you know, get 
it's not fan mail exactly, but you know, when we go to the Comic Con every year and we fill up the the two thousand seat theater with fans, many of whom are there mostly because they can't get into the, the they can't get into the, the Family Guy screening <laughs> unless they show up for ours. Um, but it's still, you know, we 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 uh, we want to impress the audience. We want to we want to make something that 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 leaves a legacy and that actually does teach them some freaking Latin. So in, in those lulls, when, when you're going through the cancellation and, and you know, it was canceled for years, what, yeah. what, as a writer, what are you doing that? Are you, are you working on other shows? What are you just you're I, waiting to get the call that it's coming back? A little of both. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, the first time it was canceled, I was in my uh, mid early forties and that was the age when you thought, okay, I got to go back to being a lawyer now because you writers in the early 2000s in their 40s didn't continue to work for another 20 years. You would, and and but then all of a sudden there was this expansion in in the late aughts, early teens, where a lot of there was a lot more cable, which is where Futurama went next, and there was eventually the whole streaming. Uh, enterprise that opened up, and so I, between the the um, the first cancellation and uh, uh, the DVD movies, I was mostly involved, and we can talk about this as much as you want in in Writers Guild politics, yeah. and that's when I that's when I became president of the guild, which is not a paying job, by the way. <laughs> it is mostly volunteer work, but the good news is. I had a meal ticket in in my, you know my wife who who was we we've had you know parallel careers where sometimes she works sometimes I work sometimes we both work um, and then sometimes neither of us work <laughs> but fortunately you know we were she was working when I wasn't and so uh, during that period but then you know there was there was that other Matt Groening show Disenchantment. That I worked on for four years um, during the other lull in in Futurama, which which had many of the same Futurama writers, and and so we got you know there, that was itself uh, kind of an old home week, and there was always you know you can you can sweep up a lot of crumbs that fall off the Matt Groening Empire table and make a nice little uh, cake to put on your own, and so I I was working with with Matt on on the. Uh, various video games and mobile app games and comic books and comic strips and things that he was doing in that period that were either through The Simpsons or Futurama and then eventually Disenchantment. So that that's mostly um, what I did <laughs> for a living. Well, did you feel, to, to go back in the timeline, and again, you can stop me anytime if you need to go. I, I, I could... No, I, for hours I, with all of this. But to go back to when you were on with Carson, like, did you think then, like, oh, this is going to be my career? I'm going to be working with Johnny until I'm ready to retire. No, <laughs> no. But again, because you, well, when I got to the Tonight Show, it was I was the at that point there were like seventy plus writers who had come and gone over the twenty five years, whatever it was, and you know there were some. These are names that won't mean much to anybody who's listening now, but there were guys like David Lloyd and Ed Weinberger and Herb Sargent. I mean, these classic sitcom and and you know the writers who went through sort of a training period at the Tonight Show, and that's what it became because as Johnny aged, 
he got to the point where you know your younger writers could do the trick for him for a while but they became disposable and so you you had about a a 10-year period more than that close to 20 in the 70s and 80s where he would hire a writer and it was a real revolving door of like maybe 13 weeks and then you know you the next the next guy tries out and so uh, so I was one of the lucky ones who actually, I was there for three 13-week stints. I got let go right before we went on strike in 1988. And so while we were on strike and Johnny was forced by NBC to work without his writers, he ended up, uh, when we came back from the strike, he ended up letting some of the guys who had been with him for decades, who we realized, hey, I can do this show without them. He let they were the high-priced guys who he let go, and he hired back a bunch of the revolving door guys, including me. So I was there until almost the end because he still had that one little something went off in his head. They said, okay, I need a little bit of a change now. So I was actually the final writer that he fired in his seventy of the seventy-five. Uh, writers he let go over the 29 years but then he retired and I got to say look he couldn't do it without me <laughs> right it's not really true but it was what I said um, so yeah no it, I, I you saw it at the time as a a training program because the other thing about it was late night tv and this is generally still true with the exception of the people who've been at, at SNL for for 40 years now um you generally work in late night because it is a revolving door or comedy variety is a place where you can go and work. Um, you know, you work for Stephen Colbert, you work for John Oliver for a couple of years, and then you sell your own show or you get something, you know, you go to work in the sitcom world or you go to work, uh, you know, on, on something that, that might last for 30 years, like the Simpsons. Um, and, and so that was, that was the assumption then. I'm not sure it's as much the assumption now, but the, but, but the corollary to that was, you know, if you didn't do that, if you didn't go from late night to sitcom to show running a sitcom, by the time you were in your early to mid 40s, you were out. Um, and so the idea that, that, you know, in the mid aughts, I, you know, I was thinking about, am I going to teach law? Am I going to be a union leader for the rest of my life? What am I going to do? And 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 then Futurama came back. Right. And and the, now that this time I just said, okay, now this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life, on and off, or at least right. the rest of Matt Groening's life. So that's so. That's, so there was no when they got picked back up for Hulu. There was no question you were coming back to it. Well, see, David Cohen and I continued to work together on some other, including Disenchantment. We continued to work together. No, there's always a question because it's really it's subject to, um, you know, it's it's Matt and David's. Um, choice but but you know since i had kept myself my my futurama muscles tuned by writing two of their mobile app games uh uh during the hiatus you know i i sort of became the the the, the archivist and the scholar of the futurama canon and i i think that's one of the reasons david keeps me around because i because I, I actually remember things that the rest of the writers have either forgotten or weren't born yet right. when we wrote them, um, which is becoming more and more the case. So you mentioned the the strike in the 80s, and so you were the head of the Writers Guild during the 2007 strike. How did that, the strike in the 80s, did that inform how you handled the, the 2000 strike? 
yes, very much so, because what, without getting into the minutia of it, the, the 2000, uh, the, the 1990, the 1988 strike was the last strike before 2007. So it had, it, it was the only strike I was involved with. We had struck in just about every negotiation. They have negotiations every three years, typically, from between 1960 and 1988. The Writers Guild had gone on strike, sometimes for a few months, sometimes for a few days, every time except once during that period. So it was routine to do that. And then the 1988 strike took a different, it was among the longest, it was over five months long, and it took on a different air because the companies played hardball, the management played hardball in a way that hadn't been... Um, Hadn't been done quite that way, uh, and and without again without going into the minutia. So so what happened in the almost twenty years between the eighty eight strike and our negotiations two thousand seven was you know yeah. a whole generation of writers came along who had never struck, and so they didn't they had to be educated and engaged and activated in a way that older writers. Did not, and and it, th so so I have I can say yes it informed, but there was a there was a real learning curve that, um, and since we haven't struck since then it's been thirteen years we have another negotiation coming up next year, um, we may be going through another fallow period like that. Then again we we uh, who knows we may so not. When you say the younger writers had to learn, what what was it just about the idea of of solidarity and and did they have to learn about the business side of the industry? You're saying, what was it that they had to learn? What, uh, mostly the history, you know, the adage about those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. And the, the, the sense in 1988 uh, was that we had struck for five months and it didn't, we didn't get anything out of it. And so the next contract People were licking their wounds, didn't want to go off and, uh, you know, for five months again over something that wasn't worth it. And so a mythos began to build that, well, okay, you know, you can, you lose five months worth of work or however long, did you but you never make it back. And, and yet over the course of those tw almost 20 years, you know, management was able to take advantage of that and was able to, 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 develop sort of these these protocols with the other unions with the directors guild which never strikes and with the screen actors guild that has its often has its own internal political uh difficulties and and th there was there were a lot of myths that came uh that came about over that 20 years that we had to both bust well first we had to you know we had internalized some of them ourselves and so we had to make sure that, you know, we understood the value of what we were trying to do. And what really made our, um, our struggle work or successful was that I think management got, got somewhat cocky because, you know, when, when cable TV came along in, in the 80s, and they negotiated like lower rate, you know, first there was TV, broadcast TV, and then cable comes along and they made lower rates because it's an entry level thing. And we don't know if it's going to succeed. So give us worse rates. 
And then, you know, when, when VHS came along, they said, well, this is going to cannibalize broadcast and cable TV. So give us a break on those rates. And then, uh, so, so and, and the problem was not only did they not cannibalize, but they worked side by side and, and the companies weren't competitors. They would buy up any other. So, and it was consolidation over the entirety of my career. You went from maybe 30 companies running the business to, to, to about five or, or now maybe seven. And it wasn't, um, and, and they worked together and they bargained together. This is the, this is what makes it so different from any other industry. Um, you, there's a thing called pattern bargaining where you have in the auto industry, for example, you have um, the various trades under the United Auto Workers will, will get together and negotiate with one, they'll pick out one of the big automakers, negotiate with them or threaten to strike them and put them at a competitive disadvantage. Then when they make the favorable deal with them, they move on to the next company. The entertainment industry had that turned on its head. And uh, the AMPTP, which is the Alliance of Motion Picture Television Producers, who, who bargains on behalf of these companies, they got these multinational conglomerates to cooperate and go to the most collaborative or the weakest union and say, you make a deal with us, we'll make sure the town keeps working, and, and you know, we'll give you a little premium. And typically, it would be the Directors Guild. And so, and then they would take that deal and try to apply it to the Writers Guild, or the Screen Actors Guild, or the Teamsters, or where, and say, look, if you don't take this deal, you're going to be the pariahs in this town right. because you're putting everybody out of work. Those, you know, poor dry cleaners and school teachers, and you know, private. And so, so that was a strategy, and it worked for 20 years. And so we had to um, fight back against that myth, and we had to fight back against the whole idea that that. They fooled us with with DVDs and VHS. They fooled us with cable. They fooled us with with. They weren't going to fool us with streaming. We were not going to give them a break on streaming because you know we didn't know it was going to be what it was. Neither did they, but it is. And so that was you know, that's what we had. We look like geniuses now, thirteen years later. But we just said, look, this could be like CB radios, or it could be the next big thing. And but either way, you know, if if we don't get it now, we're never going to get it. Did you struggle with the decision? I mean, even if you felt 100 percent justified, you knew that this is what we had to do. There's no other option. You still know that a lot of people are going to be out of work until this is solved. Like, did did you have an internal struggle with that? Of course, <laughs> I'm a working writer myself. Right. And, you know, but but again, because it was. You, you, you got to look at the long game. Yeah. And and especially, I mean, at that point, I was whatever, 15, 17 years into my career. And, you know, most of my colleagues and cohorts were were also and we could see the advantage, you know, even if we we ended up striking for 100 days and, you know, it was over the end of the year, Christmas. And so, you know, you, you, people go 100 days without working in the entertainment industry, but it's still the difficulty we have typically is that there's a there's a there's a category of writers who who work a lot and are very successful and you know minimums and and the pension fund and even the health insurance that we get is not as important to them because they're doing fine otherwise and so if they're not engaged in the struggle if they're not engaged in it from a principled perspective 
if they don't care about what's going on, then, you know, they'll, you'll lose them because, you know, they can, as much as they're the ones who can afford to stop working, they're also the ones who are missing out on the biggest paychecks week to week. And so our, you know, our strategy had to be not only the grassroots of educating the membership um, that it will be worth your while to not, um, not work for however long this takes, but also the, the, the upper echelon of writers, we had to make it clear to them and we had to engage them in why this is, you know, a long-term benefit to not only yourself, but, you know, all of us. And that's the solidarity that you mentioned. And, and the other thing that distinguishes writers and the Writers Guild members from some of the other uh, unions is that writers tend to work up a ladder when it comes to titles, when it comes to just, you know, levels of authority, in a, in a, particularly in television. And so just about all the showrunners who we, uh, we engaged with, you know, they all started out as lower level writers. They all knew what it was like to, to write their, their first script and, and what they, there was. So there was an understanding um, and there was a solidarity that you, that you don't necessarily have in, uh, in the Screen Actors Guild or the Directors Guild. Did the, did the actors and directors right. side with you? Did they kind of stay out of it? Or how, how did the other? <sighs> yes and no. Okay. The, the screen, I mean, this is all, this is, this is the history as it happened. The Screen Actors Guild was extraordinarily supportive. And uh, their president, Alan Rosenberg, was, was a, a, became a, a close ally and friend during uh, the negotiation and the strike. And uh, again, without getting into the minutia of it, having actors support you is really essential. Because that's all that the general public, that's all they care about. Right. right? I mean, it's not, you know, we, we were able to make good speeches, but unless, you know, Steve Carell delivered them, it was not going to come across to the, to the, to the general uh, viewership. Um, the Directors Guild, on the other hand, which, as I said, was, you know, has never struck in its history and whose strategy for negotiation is much more collaborative. Um, ended up in the middle of our strike going in and negotiating their contract six months in advance of expiration. They made their deal. And once that was, and it, you know, their issues were our issues. They wanted jurisdiction in new media, what we called new media in those days, what we now call streaming. Right. They wanted it too. But, um, the companies were much more likely to make a deal with them that they then would attempt with the help and alliance of you know, our members who wanted to go back to work. Um, they made the deal and then that you know, applied enough pressure uh, that, that, that we went in and negotiated a little bit better, but, but substantially the same, the same deal. And, and, uh, and that's what we from, from what I was reading, it sounds like the strategy you took, part of the strategy you took was similar to what you just described as the, uh, the Detroit strategy was you went to some of the the smaller independent producers, like you went to David Letterman's production company and negotiated with them to try to get around the the big studios. Was that, did you, did you look to Detroit as being a model for that? Our, our executive director, uh, still the executive director of the Writers Guild West, named David Young. And he did not come from the entertainment industry. He came from, 
that he was a teamsters. He was with the garment workers, uh, and and he um, he understood labor strategy. And we had a, a, a field marshal. Our organizing director was a man named Jeff Hermanson, who was also from the heart of the labor movement. And they understood how to run a strike from, with, with those strategic um, uh, perspectives. And the, what, the, the strategy that you're describing, the sort of um, a divide and conquer strategy where it's not exactly pattern bargaining because you're not you're you're making sort of an alternative deal. You're you're making the best deal possible with anybody who's willing to make it. And the the challenge we had, and and then you 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 know they can go back to work, and their writers could go back to work, and that's what happened with 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 Letterman, um, because he owned his show, and so his writers were able to go back to work. The flip side of that coin, however, is that. Jay Leno and his writers, his show was owned by NBC. NBC, a multinational conglomerate, now Comcast, what was it back then? It was Universal NBC, uh, I forget what the entity was called at the time, but, but they, were, um, they were not about to make that kind of favored nations deal. So Leno could not go back to work. Right. And, and so Leno got sort of resentful. And and that became that became its own cause celeb that I that I don't want to talk about. But sure. but it it you know that that's the flip side of okay. So some of your writers, some of uh, your members can go back to work while others can't, and that that doesn't do good uh, for solidarity. That makes that challenges. Um, so so that strategy is a double edged sword. If you could peel off, and we tried really hard at the time. And managed to make a deal with uh, United Artists and um, was it New Line? It was one one of the other. The thing was they were small production entities. They were you know we weren't going to make a deal with Sony, with Warner Brothers, with Disney, with Fox. They were hard hard liners. And and you know so so no that that I'm glad we did it. But it, but I don't know that that would work. Now, if if you know, we tried it today, we would try it. I think with with Netflix, we would try it with you know. But even that's not necessarily a sure win situation. But but ultimately, you you got what you wanted out of that that strike, right? You you did you were able to get the the percentage that you wanted from the streaming. We got jurisdiction in that okay. strike, which was what we really needed. And and since then, you know, and there've been. Or negotiations since then, and each time we improved. But uh, it was, you know, that that step was the, you know, that that was that was the big bite of the apple that had to be uh, had to be taken. So I have to ask you now about the figurine. So you, oh, sure, you, sure. You, you know, I only know this history secondhand from from my mom. So so you correct me if I'm wrong, but in the '60s and maybe even before that, there was a, a toy company called Marks, and they they put out a lot of different toys. But the the ones that I'm familiar with were these little presidential figurines. And and my mom was telling me that you could collect them at the grocery store that they went to. That that some you got you collected points from the grocery store, and, and they would have these figurines that they would do every week of of the different presidents. And you had to. You, they were only giving out the presidents in order. So you kind of you had to shop every week to get the right presents. You could collect all of them. It was, it was an interesting marketing tactic. But 
my mom yeah. said that they were her favorite toy growing up. So I, I, I ended up getting, you know, looking for them. I said, there's gotta be someone that's, that's selling these toys from the sixties that, that, you know, she used to play with them like dolls, she said. And that's how I came across you is that you sell old ones that you've refurbished. You, you make new ones. They're painted beautifully. How did you get into all of that? Well, like your mother, I was a child at the time and I didn't actually, I knew they were being sold at the Bohack was the name of the, uh, the supermarket where they had them in, in my neighborhood in, in, in Glendale, Queens, New York. Um, I didn't get them that way. After and, and Marx had been making these since the mid 1950s. Lewis Marx himself was the 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 toy king. He was on the cover of Time magazine. He was known for uh, being the man who saved Christmas because during FDR uh, during World War II, FDR wanted to shut down toy production, and <laughs> in his own interest, Lewis Marx got toy production to under uh, the uh, guise of saving Christmas. Anyway, so he was he was a close friend of, of Dwight Eisenhower. So they made a series of presidents in the mid-50s from Washington to Ike. And then when Kennedy got elected, they made uh, Kennedy and Nixon, uh, who was the, the vice president, but also the, the candidate because they didn't know who's going to win. And then LBJ in, in 63, once Kennedy was assassinated. And then come 1968, they those were all unpainted then come 1968 when you had this free-for-all with with a, a dozen lbj wasn't going to run again so they 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 made a figure of bobby kennedy they, they of, of uh, hubert humphrey uh george romney uh, uh ronald reagan and 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 nixon and and they they but they didn't put them out in the stores until it was known that Humphrey and Nixon were going to be the the uh, the nominees. So they so they they planned this whole thing leading up to the election. I think it was two a week um, where they would put out you know two presidents um, that were available in in the stores and people would go shopping and and I've I've seen these ads now in newspapers where you you know this week James Garfield and Chester Arthur and a half pound of roast beef you know it was it was that it was literally that style of of, of selling, you get a president for 15 cents with your uh, um, with your ground beef. Um, but but the way I got them was that after the 68 election, and I think they discovered they must have had tens of thousands of they overproduced them, and so in a warehouse somewhere they started selling them as a set, and they sold them as a set with a with a styrofoam display stand. And so I got mine out of the back of Parade Magazine in the New York Daily News uh, Sunday edition in 1970. And it went from Washington to uh, Nixon. And I had that set when I lived in New York, we moved to Fort Myers, Florida. When I went off to college, I brought that set. With, it was with me when I came out here. I had all these presidents. But, you know, then Nixon resigns and Gerald Ford becomes president. Then Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and, and George Bush. And I'm going, what am I going to do? I don't have, I've got all these. And when, at Futurama, where we had the Hall of Presidents, um, I set up my display in the writer's room. And I had to make little cardboard cutouts of all the presidents after Nixon because we didn't have them. So at this point, eBay comes online. This is like 97 or 98. eBay was relatively new. And I discovered that they had made these prototypes 
in in 68. And so I got the Reagan that I didn't have. And and I got Humphrey and all the other ones that, you know, Bobby Kennedy and George Romney. And, and I said, you know, I can actually put a little face, a little cardboard face on Hubert Humphrey and let's say he's Gerald Ford. And did this Bobby Kennedy became Jimmy Carter all the way up to 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 George W. Bush at the time. So um, then when Futurama went into remission, I said, well, let me see if I can actually sculpt the head, if I can, you know, carve away the parts of Hubert Humphrey that don't look like Gerald Ford and make it look like Gerald Ford. And 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 I could. So so I made a set for myself. And then I taught myself how to cast and I made a second set. And I listed it on eBay and it sold for $790. <laughs> and I said, I'm not Got the only person who has a fixation on these presidents. So um, that's 20 years ago. I've now been making, and then of course, I, I made Obama and McCain. I made a Mitt Romney out of George Romney. Okay. Uh, um, I can get to how I had to deal with Hillary Clinton did not look, did not have the physical build. There were no presidents in pantsuits. Right. right. So I actually had to get somebody to design a 3D you know, model of Hillary Clinton. So that was my first 3D created figurine. And then and then Trump was made, it was a, a Senator uh, Charles Percy became Trump. Uh, and then the la then the 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 who's our president now? Joe Biden, that's his name. <laughs> We've been Joe Biden. I, I've just now gone down. It's easy to do the 3D uh, sculpt because I don't have to do it. So Biden is a is a start from scratch uh, president <laughs> figure. But but so I you know I make these as the presidents are elected, and I just sell them by the thousands on eBay. I've been doing it for 20 years. I've now been doing it longer than Marx did it, <laughs> which is a testament to my own compulsion that I gotta have them. Why do you think that, that they've stood out? So why is there so much interest in them? A couple of reasons. There are people my age who uh, genuinely collected them and remember them from their childhood as a, uh, as a toy, like, like your, your mother. But then there's also this whole world out there of you know, your mother's parents and grandparents who went to the supermarket religiously and, and collected them for their grandchildren who are now my age and who put them in the closet because they didn't care about them and who now list them on eBay in mint in package condition, which I can then hoard and, and put together in full sets and sell. So, you know, there, and, and there's a lot of, there's a great interest among teachers. There's a great interest among just, academics and scholars and I don't know it's enough that I can you know 25,000 figurines later um I'm not the only one who likes That's incredible them. wait yeah. did you ever do any sculpting or painting before N not not for fun or uh, for fun not for profit I would say right. I, 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 I dabble it was okay. not um no it was because I you know, as a kid I would paint models, you know, model cars and planes, that sort of thing. But no. When we got yours and my mom said these are prettier than the ones I even remember when they were brand new. I mean, she, she loved new. what you did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, they because that's very nice of her to say. <laughs> I mean, they are they, these are factory made now. Yeah, and I I, right. I don't have 
you know, the time <laughs> to make. I still paint. I make Supreme Court justices as well. Okay. And I still, um, I still paint those myself, and which wow. is why you don't see them listed on eBay very yeah. often. Oh, that's um, great. And, yeah. Patrick, I've kept you way longer than I said I would. So I, again, this is I could, fun. I'm, I, I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let I'll let you go. I, I'll, we, right. we can do this again because I I I have so many more questions I could keep asking you. But um, is there Futurama's coming out in 2023? Do we have a, an exact date on when that's going to be on Hulu? We don't have. We don't. Not only do we not have an exact date, we don't know if they're going to roll them out all ten. There'll be okay. ten of them. We know that. Uh, and then another ten in 2024. We don't know if they're going to drop them all at once or week by week, because who does it both ways? We're going to have them finished by, I think, the, the end of January. So, so you know, they could do it as early, I think, as February, but I don't know that they will. So, and if people, are interested in the, if people are interested in the figurines, which, again, if you're a nerd for American history for the presidents, you, you have to own these. I mean, it, it's just so cool seeing these figurines. Where can people go to, to find those? If you go to the, all websites will lead you to uh, my eBay store, but you can either go to verone.com or you can go to historicfigures.us. Got it. It will both take you to my eBay store. And is there anything else you're working on that I left out that you want to direct people towards? You're a busy guy. I don't want to miss uh, anything. No, you know, uh, no, okay. <laughs> nothing that I, nothing that I can talk about, uh, okay publicly so well, we'll but, have no, you back but, maybe yeah, watch watch and rewatch futurama and 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 buy the figures great patrick thank you so much for your time this was this is great thanks eric this was fun <laughs> <laughs>